Let's look to the Lord in prayer. So now, Father, for those that are struggling with fairness, for those that are grappling with injustice, for those that are wondering, where is God in the midst of it all? Well, now, Father, in the second of these services this morning, again, we're praying that you'll speak at the point of need. As we're reflecting, we're thanking you as well for what took place yesterday. Thank you, knowing that Kathy Baki is now home with Jesus. So we reflect on the flowers up front. We think about a life well lived. We think about the Savior who died not only for Kathy, but died for us and lives. And so, Father, Jesus himself faced the injustices of false accusations. And out of it all, Father, he kept the appointment that was established in eternity past by going to the cross and dying for our sins. So, Father, these minutes are important. We continue in our worship. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wheels. As again, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a story that has gripped my attention, and once in a while I recall for a congregation or the course of years that is saturated with wisdom. Where Philip Yancey recalls that after the accident, Douglas never knew when a headache might strike. Douglas with an MD. Douglas with a strong medical practice. Yet Douglas, who could not work a full day and sometimes would become disoriented and forgetful. The accident permanently affected his vision. One eye wandered at will, refusing to focus, and he developed double vision and could hardly walk down a flight of stairs without assistance. Douglas, the psychiatrist, learned to cope with all of his disabilities but one. He could not read more than a page or two at a time. All his life he had loved books, and now he was restricted to the limited selections and the sluggish pace of recorded volumes. So when I called Douglas to ask for an interview, he suggested meeting over breakfast, and when the scheduled time came, well, I braced myself for a difficult morning. But then I interviewed a dozen people that morning, had heard a full range of disappointment with God, and it seemed as though if anyone had a right to be angry with God, Douglas did. Just that week, his wife had gotten a dismaying report from the hospital. There was still yet another spot in her lung. So as our meal was being served, we caught up on the details of our lives. Douglas ate with great concentration and care. Thick glasses corrected some of the vision problems, but he had to work hard at focusing just to guide his fork to his mouth. I forced myself to look directly at him as he talked. Hmm. Trying to ignore the distraction of the wandering eye. At last, as we finished breakfast and mentioned and motioned for the waitress for more coffee, I described my book on disappointment with God. 
Douglas, could you tell me about your own disappointment, I asked? Have you learned that something that might be of help for others going through difficult times? Well, Douglas was silent for what seemed like a long time. He stroked his peppery gray beard, gazed off beyond my right shoulder. I fleetingly wondered if uh, he was having a mental gap. When finally he said, I tell you the truth, Philip, I don't feel any disappointment with God. I was startled. Douglas, searingly honest, had always rejected the easy formulas like turn your scars into stars. And so I waited for the explanation to come. It did. The reason is this. I learned first through my wife's illness and then especially through the accident not to confuse God with life. I'm no stoic. I'm as upset about what happened to me as anyone could be. I feel free to curse the unfairness of life and to vent all my grief and frustration. But I believe God feels the same way. I don't blame him for what happened. And then he continued. I have learned to see beyond the physical reality in this world to the spiritual reality. We tend to think life should be fair because God is fair. But God is not life. And if I confuse God with the physical reality of life by expecting constant good health, then I set myself up for a crashing disappointment. God's existence, even his love for me, does not depend on my good health. Frankly, I've had more time and opportunity to work on my relationship with God during my impairment than before. Extraordinary wisdom is found in these words at this point. The story begins to unfold for us, not only in Douglas's life, but also in Job's life. Because now what you will find at this point is that Job is in the third of three cycles of the give and take with his supposed counselors who've lost their sense of why they came to begin with. And so they ought to have come to extend mercy. Instead, what they're doing is producing what they thought is justice, but in reality is injustice. What I want to do with you now is to draw out three life situations that are found in these verses that maybe you, a loved one, somebody in your circle is experiencing where they're grappling with where is God, what is God doing, and confusing the injustices of life with the workings of God. And the first comes out of verses 1 through 7, that when injustices grow and intensify, here's the first point that appears on the screen. Continue to seek God, even when God's presence seems hidden from us. There are going to be times when it seems as though God is elusive. God's on the move. And you can't find God in the midst of your challenges. You ever been there? Well, Job is. Job has. And so he starts off now with his response to, in round three, the oldest of the three counselors that has already articulated his views to Job in chapter 22. And Job responds by saying, beginning in verse 2 now, 
Today also, my complaint is bitter. He's being honest with you. He's got complaints. He's bitter. They hear it. And now what they're thinking is he's bitter because he has sinned, he is guilty, therefore repent, and your suffering will disappear, and you'll be right once again with God. That, in essence, was the counsel that had been given in the previous chapter. Agree with God and be at peace. Thereby, good will come to you in verse 21, chapter 22. (coughs) The problem is this. The idea of repentance is biblical. But misapplied repentance is unbiblical. Job at this point is not being called upon by God to repent. At this point, what Job is being called upon by God is to be a testimony to religious as well as secular unbelievers. That one can be faithful even when he's facing misapplied counsel by articulating a sound testimony of God's mercy within one's own life. And so now, Job at this point is saying, Yeah, on one hand, my complaint's bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. And then he says, Ah, about this elusive God. Verse 3. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. What seat? Well, Job still has a judicial view of God. He views God as the judge, not the father. Now, C.S. Lewis understood this. In his book, With Regard to Suffering, A Grief Observed, Lewis at one point asked, Meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms. When you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, if you turn to him with praise, you'll, you'll feel like you're being welcomed with open arms. But on the other hand, go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help's vain. What do you find? It feels like a door's being slammed in your face. The sound of bolting, double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. There's the book of Job again. You may as well turn away. But our counsel at this point is C.S. Lewis, and our counsel at this point is to Job, is to not turn away, but to continue to seek God, even when God's presence seems hidden from us. The question is not where is God, the question is who moved. You see, in the midst of our sufferings, God doesn't move. But oftentimes, in the midst of our sufferings, we do. And when we confuse God with the injustices of life, we think that God must have shifted away from us because of what we're experiencing at this time. But what if we are finding that God, in fact, is present, and we're the ones that moved? What makes us think this way about Job? Job is not utilizing the capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in chapter 23. He calls him the Almighty. He referred to him as his judge. The challenge is he's got a judicial view of his relationship with God because of suffering, not a relational connection with God in the midst of his suffering. And very often that's the issue that so many people experience. And then they fall into the trap being posed by the question Yancey offered to Douglas. 
And Douglas responded wisely that in the midst of the sufferings, you don't confuse God with life and all the injustices that life entails. Now, here's Job, and so he's still viewing, in chapter 23, his relationship with God as one that's judicial rather than relational. So he wants to make his case. So you're in verse 4 now, and he's saying, here's what I would do. I would lay my case before him, fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me, understand what he would say to me. He wants to understand. Somebody who's hurting, oftentimes, what's longing for at that point is uh, some kind of diagnosis, so at least they can understand what it is that's afflicting them. Job doesn't even understand. He hasn't been given a diagnosis at this point. He's just living with the turmoil of the pain. He's got to make his way through this entire experience. In this case, so many of us have to likewise deal with these kinds of issues in our own personal lives. Well, he said, I would do this. I would do that in verses 4 and 5. But then he's got a question. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? Sound theology at this point. Uh, No, he would pay attention to me. He's convinced of that. So here's what he wants to do. And it's got to be a burr in the side of his counselors who've got this very rigid view of God in relationship to suffering, that Job is suffering because Job must be guilty. When Job says, there an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever. But notice this, he doesn't say, by my father. By my judge. Ah, Job, Job, you need to come to grips with the Messiah who would come to this world and take in the courtroom of the universe the injustices that come from false accusations that are presented through the judicial system of both the Jewish as well as the Roman cases. And in the injustices, we find that justice is established so that grace is provided because at the cross of Jesus Christ, justice and grace are two sides of the same coin. He took justice so that we could experience grace. But there's that elusive gut. And he's wondering, oh, that I knew where I might find him here in verse 3, thinking about that at this point. But then again, there's a Jesus in John chapter 14, who's just said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long? You still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? You see, it's not that God is elusive, the issue is humanity is elusive. It was Adam and Eve running from God in that garden. It was not God running from Adam and Eve. 
God was doing the seeking. And so now, what we have to do at this point is to realize that humanity is on the take. Humanity is missing in action. Humanity tends to be elusive. And God in that garden experience comes seeking us out. And that stands out in our minds. Dr. Kopp, the oncologist that I've referred to in this series since January off and on, writes, Johnny Erickson Tata has been one of used more of God as a quadriplegic in a wheelchair than she ever was standing on two feet. Watergate conspirator Chuck Colson had been of more use to God when he went to prison. Harvard student Brent Foster had been more used of God afflicted by cancer than if he had enjoyed perfect health. And then Dr. Comp makes an incredible statement. Listen to it carefully. Each of these individuals moved past the introspective derailment of posing the question, why me? To the affirmative statement, since it is me, what am I going to do about it? In other words, somewhere along the way, you're going to have to move from the why to the how. To be able to gain traction in life, you're going to have to move beyond the why me to how can I use this for God's glory. She continues. Saintly stories are really all about messes in life, you know. If Johnny, Johnny uh, Erickson had retained her mobility, or if Chuck Colson had been converted but never gone to jail, or if Brent had started Harvard as a healthy student, or if Job had retained his wealth and popularity, and then adds, without their ifs, quote-unquote, what use would any of these stories be to us fellow pilgrims? If they were of no use to us, what possible use could they be to God? And the brilliant oncologist from Yale goes on to say, Brent Foster is as comfortable to Job as anyone I knew. High school friends called him the most accomplished, polished, courageous student who'd ever graduated from school. Elected president of most organizations. He began his studies at Harvard. The world seemed to be at his feet. But his lungs were already full of metastatic cancer. Like Job, Brent became strong when he was weak. The best that Job could do was to hold fast to his faith in and relationship with God. And so near the end of his life, Brent Foster echoed Job's words, When all the distractions and illusions we create for ourselves are washed away, all can appear empty and futile. However, I now know that what remains after such a washing is all I really ever had to begin with. God. My faith in God. And the hope that things are going to work out according to his will. Now, you're going to have to track with Job. He knows this. He knows this. But he's still, his emotions are going to be all over the map because, you see, he's suffering. And you're going to have to accept that when you are ministering to people who are hurting. 
They're going to say things that are going to be on the basis of how they're feeling at that point that might contradict what they know to be true. And you're going to have to be patient with such jobs. When injustices grow and they intensify, our first bit of counsel, well, continue to seek God, even when God's presence seems hidden from us. Even C.S. Lewis had to work through that dilemma. Now, there's a second life condition. It comes out of verses 8 through 12. More counsel. That when injustices grow and intensify, continue to seek God, 8 through 12 now, even when God's ways seem difficult for us. Now, you might be looking at the ways of God, and you're saying, now, that's God's way is not my way. That is not how I would have outlined my life. I'm not where I thought I would be. I'm not moving in the direction I thought I would be going. Welcome to life. Welcome to Job. What's interesting at this point is realizing that Job uh, continues to, in reference to God, not speak of him in a relational sense, but in a judicial sense. But now we're going to see something more in the imagery because in this second bit of counsel, the second life situation, the imagery shifts from that of the courtroom to that of the smelting preparations for purifying gold. Check it out. Beginning in verse 8, he uses a very visual word, behold. He wants his counselors now to enter into this, begin to think this through with him. He's hurting. They're doing better than he is. But he's having to maintain some kind of mental discipline in order to present his case. But now notice the north, south, east, west dilemma in his experience. I go forward. He's not there. Speaking of God. Backward. I do not perceive him. Okay. On the left hand, when he's working, I do not behold him. Now take that word, behold, I do not behold him, and link it back to what he just told his counselors, behold. He wants them to behold what he's saying, but he can't behold the God who has spoken. And this is such a tension in his own personal experience of suffering. Have you ever been there? Deep breath. He turns to the right hand, speaking of God. But I do not see him. Now what I want you to do at this point is to circle the B.U.T.s and notice the contrasts as well as the similarities in them. On one hand, he says at the end of verse 9, But I do not see him. You're going to see him lifting his hands up in exasperation. But then in verse 10 he says, But He knows the way that I take. I don't see God, but God sees me. What he's doing at this point is that he is reminding himself theologically of what he needs emotionally and what he needs physically is a fresh understanding that even when you can't see God, God sees you. And when you don't fully understand why you're going through what you're going through, God understands exactly what you're going through. He sent Jesus to the cross to die in your place for our sins. And so, but God, 
We did a series on But God. Not terribly long ago. Everything seems to be going wrong. And then all of a sudden we find phrases such as, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. But, I don't know the way, but he knows the way that I take. Now, it doesn't read, but he knows the way that he takes. So all of a sudden now, it seems as though that this elusive God in the mindset of Job is such that Job is able to say, God still sees me even though I can't see him. God's tracking with me, though I'm not necessarily tracking with him because now he knows, he knows the way that I take. And now notice the shift of imagery. He takes you from the imagery of the judicial to the imagery of the furnace. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. What does the furnace and the courtroom have in common? Trying. You're tried in the courtroom. You're tried in the furnace. Different usages of the same metaphor, the same symbol, the same image. Now, what God is doing at this point is that he is working with Job in the very same way that the Apostle Paul would write. For all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. It doesn't read... For all things feel good, does it? No. For all things work together for the good to them that love God and are called according to his purpose. Now this smelting process, this purification of the gold process might not necessarily feel good, but you come out like gold. And some of us need to understand that if our courtroom matter or our furnace symbolism is at the forefront of what we're experiencing at this point. And so here now is Job and he's saying, well my foot he's back now to some resoluteness. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way, not turned aside. He's saying I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth even more than my portion of food. And I can imagine that his religious counselors at this point are ticked off because once again what he's basically doing is he's challenging their assumption that the sufferings are based upon guilt. And he's saying I'm blameless. I'm not saying I'm sinless but I'm blameless. I don't deserve this but I'm experiencing this. He turns to God's word. I've treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Jacob Deshazer was one of those who participated in Jimmy Doolittle's raid over Japan in 1942. And he was captured. He was imprisoned by the Japanese. He experienced physical and emotional punishment. Watched his friends go before firing squads and others die of starvation. The biographer tells us that though he was an atheist, the days and weeks of pain and deprivation made him consider issues of life and death. He asked a jailer if he could get a Bible and was met with derision. He persisted more than a year later. A guard finally brought him a Bible, saying, Three weeks, then I take it away. Sure enough, in three weeks, the guard returned and claimed the Bible. 
But those three weeks, the biographer tells us, changed his life. And when Deshazer eventually returned to Japan, he would return with wife and son as Christian missionaries. Atheist beforehand, missionary subsequent too. And it was the suffering of the imprisonment where the word of God took. And now we're back to that question that Dr. Kopp from Yale poses, the questions of the ifs. What if Johnny had retained her mobility? What if Chuck Colson had been converted but never went to jail? What if Brent started, uh, had started Harvard as a healthy student? And what if Job had retained his wealth and his popularity? And then adds, without their ifs, or our ifs, what use would any of these stories be to fellow pilgrims? And if they were of no use to us, what possible use could they be to God? Well, you're asking great questions, and Dr. Comp's asking great questions, and what we've got to do now is to shift then to the third and final counsel that's being given here in these verses, that when iniquities grow and intensify, you've got to continue to seek God. Continue. Even when God's nature seems frightening to us. And you say, hey, Ger, perfect love casts out fear. I know that verse in the Bible. And so now, what you're talking about here? Feel the tension? In verse 13, Job, I want you to see the emotions are all over the map while the core beliefs remain intact. You've got to understand both, not one to the exclusion of the other. Otherwise, you don't understand this book. Speaking of God, but he is unchangeable. Therefore, in essence, what he's implying is that God hasn't moved. Job has. So Job in his terminology might refer to God as judge, or Job in his terminology might view God as the Almighty, but we haven't seen anything here where he refers to God as capital L-O-R-D, in other words, the relational name for God. Instead, back and forth he goes. What he desires, that he does, and God is sovereign. That's good theology at this point. For he will complete what he appoints for me. And my mind goes back to what my pastor Warren Wearsby once said decades ago. My disappointments are his appointments. And so when you experience a disappointment in life, it's during those times that God brings a certain person or people into your life. And that's when there's a hearing and that's when your words carry on weight and significance and what they have to process in their own life experience. But he's being open, he's being honest with these guys. He's saying, therefore, I'm terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him, speaking of God. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Well... God has used people who have been taken with terror and used them as conveyors of grace. Ever heard of Martin Luther? Luther was walking in the midst of a thunderstorm, severe storm, bolt of lightning crashed so close to him, he's thrown to the ground. Roland Baton tells the story. 
On a sultry day in July, a lonely traveler was trudging over a parched road on the outskirts of a Saxon village. Young man, short, sturdy, wore the dress of a university student, approached the village. The sky became overcast. Suddenly, there was a shower, then a crashing storm. A bolt of lightning riveted and rived the gloom and knocked the man to the ground, struggling to rise. Luther cried out, Saint Anne, help me. I'll become a monk. Man, that would be the last thing I'd want to do. If a lightning bolt struck, how do you respond? Well, then again, there's Lee Trevino. A few years into his uh, multiple championships, a biographer tells us um, three professional golfers were knocked to the ground by a lightning bolt during the Western Open. And one of the three, Lee Trevino, suffered a back injury that severely hampered his future career. And when interviewed on a television show about the incident, the host inquired of Trevino, well, what did you learn from the experience? And in typical fashion, Lee Trevino replied, quote, I learned that if the Almighty wants to play through, you better get out of his way. <laughs> quote, unquote. And Job's saying, I've been trying so hard to get out of the way. But Trevino is saying, if the Almighty wants to play through, and what Job is saying at this point, God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. What do I do with all this stuff? But then he's back to his core convictions. His emotions settle once again. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. And maybe it seems as though the path is kind of dark right now. When all of a sudden Douglas looks up at Philip Yancey. It's time to go. Douglas glanced at his watch and realized he was already late for another appointment. So he put his coat on hurriedly and stood up to leave and then leaned forward with one final thought. Philip, I challenge you to go home and read again the story of Jesus. Was life fair to Jesus? For me, you see, the cross demolished for all time the basic assumption that life will be fair. For you see, Job's False counselors start with assumptions that led to accusations. But then again, that was the experience of Jesus, where his severest critics start with assumptions about Jesus that led to false accusations about Jesus. Yet in the midst of the injustice, he died for our sins. And so for all who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, it's at the cross of Jesus Christ where the tension of justice and injustice gets worked out, and where grace and mercy is found. Let's stand together. Father, we realize the book of Job is found in the books of wisdom in the Older Testament. And layer by layer, week by week, we keep adding wisdom to our life experience as we examine the book of Job. 
for anybody here this morning who has experienced some form of injustice where they feel as though that just wasn't fair. I pray we can learn from Douglas Snow, who himself has gained a hearing. His words count. And somehow we're going to have to move from the if to the how. And begin to understand, we've got to start asking, how can I use this to bring glory to God? Thank you that Jesus went to that cross. Thank you that Jesus was willing to experience the injustices of assumptions that led to accusations. And thank you for grace that is found in Jesus and his finished work. And for this we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.